Hi, this is Danny Morrison, and you are listening to this wonderful podcast, Dean at Stumps Podcast. It's a little ripper. And Dino, I know he's missing the double Ds. If you please, Dino Duplessis, what a wonderful podcast. Get amongst it, listen to it lots. It's a ripper. Welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Hello and welcome to another fresh, brand new edition of the Dean at Stumps podcast. Uh, my name is Dean Duplessis. Wherever you may be listening to this podcast, a warm welcome to you and a reminder that you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Downcast, Pocketcast, and any other podcast app you prefer using. It's great to be with you. And just a reminder that you can listen to some fantastic interviews, the likes of Sean Pollock, former South African captain, Michael Vaughan, England's former captain, Michael Holding, Whispering Death. What a legend he still is and was when the West Indies team was so feared in the late 70s to the mid 80s. He's around. We also have a short chat with Andy Flower, Tawanda Muyeye, uh, an incredibly talented young 19-year-old Zimbabwean born and bred who uh, recently won the Wisden Schools Cricketer of the Year Award. It is great to be with you as always. Thank you so much for taking time out to listen. Well, before we get into this week's interview, uh, who I'll just briefly tell you about, and I'm sure that you'll be able to guess who it is, maybe... uh, Well, you would have seen by the title, of course, but even so. So he was a fantastic left-hander. He batted with a great deal of simplicity, huge amount of poise. He was elegant at the crease. And when he finished his career in 1992, he brought that elegance with him into the television commentary box, the Sky Sports Cricket commentary box, before sadly his commentary career also came to an end. So I'm sure it gives you uh, no uh, second guesses as to who it is that we're going to be talking to. But first, before we get into that, here is a message from you from Solidarity Trust Zimbabwe. Good day, my fellow Zimbabweans. My name is Karen Mutasa, and I am a trustee of the Solidarity Trust Zimbabwe Fund. Solidarity Trust is a group of people who are from the private sector as well as professionals, doctors and business people around Zimbabwe. We were concerned about the health sector not being ready to accept COVID patients. We have embarked on a project, first of all, to get the St. Anne's Hospital resuscitated after being shut down for many years. This project is really on its way to being open in the next 10 days. We are also working with Ikusileni as well as Mutare and Shishavane and Vic Falls to assist in opening facilities there for people who may contract COVID-19. We have a fundraising project going on at the moment, which is really, really important in order for us to be able to fight this pandemic. We would so appreciate any donation that you may be able to assist with this project. You can go to our page, www.sotsim.org, in order to donate. Please spread the word because we need to be able to get these hospitals, facilities all ready in time for anybody who is in Zimbabwe so that they will have a chance to get treatment 
and to be able to save their lives. It is really important as well for us to be able to raise as much funding as we can in order to support the incredible health sector, the nurses and the doctors who are operating the 2019 hotline number, which we have in conjunction with the Ministry of Health. You can phone 2019 if you need any telemedicine and to be able to get a consultation before rushing off to go and check in at the hospital or at a doctor. You can get tested at home. So the 2019 number is really important for you to call if you have any symptoms. But more importantly, we really, really need to raise as much funding as we can. Thank you to Dean Duplessis for allowing us to be able to broadcast on his podcast for you to support Sotsim. Once again, you can go to our donate page fund, which is on www.sotzim.org or our Facebook handle, Twitter and Instagram. Thank you once again. God bless you all. And just remember, united together, we can fight this pandemic. You're listening to Dean at Stumps, hosted by Dean Duplessis. Thank you very much indeed to Karen Mutasa, one of the trustees at Solidarity Trust Zimbabwe. And just that website address again, www.sotzim. If you uh, go onto that website, you will then, uh, if you're listening to this podcast from beyond Zimbabwe's boundaries and borders, then uh, perhaps you uh, may just be able to assist in any way you possibly can. Of course, we understand that there are many countries around the world who are in even more extremes than Zimbabwe. But uh, I'm sure we all stand together and try and help each other where we can. So you would have listened to this gentleman in the Sky Sports commentary box for the last, oh, give or take 25 years and in that very calm way going about his business. And uh, without hardly raising his voice, he still had the ability to make you feel relaxed. At the same time, also pretty excited, regardless of who you were watching. A fantastic player who captained England in the uh, early 80s as well. And this uh, is somebody who I've been wanting to talk to for a very long time. I am, of course, referring to one of England's finest on the field and off the field in terms of a gentleman off the field and in terms of the way that he went about his business on the field. A fantastic left-hander by the name of David Garb. Well, as uh, I suppose most people do when going into these lockdown situations, I asked him how he is keeping himself busy at uh, his beautiful home in Hampshire. Dean, it's, well, it's a real mix of absolutely nothing <laughs> or a little bit more than nothing. Or where we're actually very lucky, I have to say, is that um, where we live in Hampshire, have been for about 30 years now, um, we have space. Um, we have a house with a garden, nice big garden. Um, I have a, a wife who likes to take control. Right. Um, so there's been lots going on. I mean, I started when we started lockdown three, four weeks ago. Now there seemed to be a lot of compost that needed shifting from one end of a garden to another um, and onto beds. I mean, it's one of the, the, so the knock-on effect of all this is actually very straightforward. The garden looks great. And, um, you know, I'm looking a bit grubby. 
so the, the joys of having space, yes, uh, where we are here, uh, we have something very similar as well. But um, let, let's get into the meat and potatoes situation now, and that is, first and foremost, I've noticed that at, uh, was at the end of last year that you called a time on your your commentary box career, I suppose, your, your stints in the commentary box. That, that's very, very sad indeed. It is sad. Um, I, yeah, I mean, to be absolutely clear, I didn't call time, right. Sky did. Right. Um, you know, these are changing times. These were changing times before uh, pandemic started. Um, and there were, for whatever reason, they decided that it was time to send myself and Ian both of them off to other pastures. Um, I mean, it's one of those things I, I have to say, I tried very, very hard to apply for my own job again. Um, I'd known it was happening or was going to happen for about two years before it had to happen. Um, and truth is, I was very sad. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed most things I've done for the last 40 years. The playing side of it was great, um, has its ups and downs. The broadcasting was just a fantastic way of continuing in very much the same environment, um, being the mates, watching the game, having easy access to some of the best seats and some of the best test matches. Um, and I also took, I say, I also took pride in what I did. So, I mean, the, the consolation as it is has been that since then, there are a lot of comments at the time, Twitter and all sorts of people saying um, how ridiculous it was, how much they might miss me and Ian. Um, and there have been more comments at the start of this summer season, which, of course, isn't really a summer season yet. Yes. Um, because you know, although there is no live action, nothing to actually commentate on, there are people doing Sky, for instance, are doing virtual test matches. Um, they replayed. I mean, the irony was they replayed that uh, famous Headingley test match from last year, the Ben Stokes test. Yeah. And they replayed it, of course, with Ian and I both on commentary and in the studio afterwards, um, <laughs> talking about it. So it was as if we hadn't left. And, then, you know, again, unfortunately, people were saying, well, how nice to see you. But it just rams it home that it is kind of finished. And what a real shame it is. I, unfortunately, never was able to witness you at your at the, the height of your career when you were scoring so many runs, be it for England or for Leicestershire in the late 1970s and mid-1980s, mid to late 1980s. Uh, but obviously words that I've heard mentioned on several occasions when your name comes up in conversation is effortless, uh, graceful, many other words, uh, beautiful superlatives that one could use when describing your batting. So in my opinion, as a listener, that is what you brought into the commentary box and which I very much appreciated. So I, I don't say it because I'm talking to you. It, it's from the heart, in my opinion, the best commentator on Sky. Uh, so how did you do that? I mean, it, it, everything that you seem to do, whether you are batting or whether you're in the commentary box, you did with that that laid-back style that so many people loved you for or even at times as a player criticised you for as well. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it's, nice. It's, it's nice to have that sort of reputation. It's nice to have people feel as though it looks effortless because... Yeah, it's it's a sign really that things are going well, I guess. Um the the truth is always it's the you know, the duck or the goose or the swan paddling. Mm. You know, whatever you see above water, um, there can be quite a bit going on. I mean, for instance, in the playing days, 
there was almost a conscious effort to try and look relaxed as a sort of self-defense mechanism, uh, as a way of trying to combat whatever aggression was coming from the other end, from, you know, whether it be Australians, West Indians, you know, whoever we were playing against in the world or in the county system, you obviously you've got people being very, very competitive 20 yards away. So it was a way of trying to deflect from that, trying to sort of calm myself down as well. Um, and it's, it's also a sort of, um, I say it's a self-defense mechanism. It's, it's a way of keeping oneself calm. Um, I mean, on the, in the broadcasting sense, I mean, again, you can imagine whatever you see or hear on the TV screen. Um, there are times, especially with, say, the, um, sort of the analysis at the end of a day where, you know, things are changing rapidly, where you're trying to get an interview with someone, where you're trying to talk to a couple of guys in the studio and you've got someone lined up or nearly lined up or not quite there or nearly there, mm. and you're trying to listen in your ear for the instructions and quietly go to it when it's ready. You know, there are all sorts of things which are things you learn as you, of course, get better at it. Um, and if it looks good and sounds good, then that's you know, that, that I'm really happy with that because I was also... Um, although, again, it didn't always look like it. I was also my own harshest critic, both as a player uh, and as a, a broadcaster. You know, if I had a good day with a microphone, it felt good. If I had a bad day, it felt bad. Um, on, the, on the pitch, you have, you know, the stats are there for all to see. If you're out for a duck, it's very obvious. And um, it used to hurt. Of course it hurt. Um, but again, I used to sort of develop a, a sort of self-defense mechanism whereby if someone got me out, and you've got that sort of minute and a half as you walk back into the pavilion and you sit down and you put your, well, hopefully you put your bat and gloves down. You might on a bad day throw them down. Um, but as you take stock as to whether or not it was your fault, as to whether or not it might have been um, something to do with a good delivery from the bowler, you know, there are times you give the opposition credit, times you know ever so well in your own mind that it was entirely your fault. And um, as I say, I could be a very harsh critic of myself under those circumstances. But you have to, you can't, you, inevitably you've got to find a way through. Um, because if you, as it were, take to heart all your failures, all your downtime, that actually gets quite damaging. Um, because there are lots of ordinary days, lots of bad days. And that's why we always, any of us in the sport have always said to ourselves, you've got to make the most of the good days. And I, I mean, it, it, to me, it's still just so incredibly sad that somebody at the height of his career in terms of commentary should uh, be sent out to, I, I can't necessarily say greener pastures, but to different pastures. Mm -hmm. and, and it kind of felt like that towards, you know, uh, as a batsman, that you had something very similar as well. I mean, I, I would imagine that, for example, it would have been an immensely... Uh, difficult roller coaster ride for you in your playing career from 19, uh, and this is just my opinion listening in, from 19, mm. 1985 up until about 1989. So you had the euphoria of winning the or regaining the Ashes from Australia at home in 1985 while you were captaining the side. Everything went incredibly well. And I would imagine that probably would have set that up rather nicely for you for your tour of 19 or of the West Indies in 1986, which sadly for England and, and for you did not go according to plan. You then subsequently lost the captaincy, if I'm correct, to, to Mike Gatting. Yeah. 
and yep. and but then things started coming right very nicely in 1987 when you when you once again were able to retain the ashes in Australia which then sadly then led to things not going, which then got you the captaincy back, but then sadly things uh, not going well again in 1989. So incredible emotions that you had to deal with in a relative short space of time as a professional sportsman. Mm, well, again, that, that is very much what you have to learn to cope with. Um, I mean, the, you go back to the early years where everything you do is largely or seems largely for fun. And, you know, the learning curve is steep. Um, as long as you have the ability and the mental capacity to, to keep going onwards and upwards, that's fine. Um, and it's when, it's when things dip that you then start to learn more about yourself. I mean, that, that passage, those few years you mentioned just there, you're right. 85 euphoria, captain winning the ashes, lots of runs. Um, ups and downs, 86, seven ashes, um, Got some runs there again uh, under Mike Gatting, and it was a great feeling to be part of another Ashes winning side in Australia. Um, there were runs to come next couple of years. Even even that West Indies tour, I got runs on the tour. Mm. Um, still a pretty miserable time in the sense as a captain when you're up against what I would still argue, actually, to all concerned, was the that era of West Indies cricket. They must have been the finest side ever. Um, I mean, every time they were in any sort of trouble, someone got them out of it. It's normally the bowlers who got them out of trouble. Even if we had days where we got their batsmen out, um, with that pace attack they had in the, well, all the way through the 80s, they tended to be able to redress the balance rather rather quickly. So you have those ups and downs. The, the, the big disappointment, to be fair, was the ashes of 89 where getting the captaincy back and being um, suitably optimistic without taking anything for granted that we could win that series and have another good summer as with 85, when everything that could go wrong did go wrong, that was, I think, one of the toughest times of all. Um, because you just feel, in the end, you feel, um, to use a simple word, helpless. Mm. You know, whatever you try, whatever you think, um, nothing seems to work. Uh, we had all sorts of things. We, we made mistakes of our own. I made mistakes of my own as captain. We had injuries, we had people in and out of form, we had a rebel tour which um, <laughs> was being put together in the background of that Ashes series. As ever, there's one simple rule about rebel tours. The last person to find out about it is the incumbent captain. Right. So although, although people like Ted Dexter and Mickey Stewart as the team management knew, had heard about it, they hadn't told me about it, although some of the players who were in that test match at Old Trafford when we lost and lost the ashes with it, um, they knew they were already signed up on it. Of course, no one can tell the captain until it becomes public knowledge. So, I mean, the, it was an incredible summer, which, um, you know, for not very good reasons, which I, yeah, I look back on, um, it's one of those things you sort of try and put it aside. You try and sort of dismiss it. Um, you survive. I mean, this is the thing. This is, you know, all being well in life, uh, these things will be tests. They'll be disappointing. They'll be upsetting. Um, when you've had a bit of time to pull yourself together and get over it, then you move on. And that's what I had to do. So I still had more test cricket to play. Um, 1991 in Australia, again, a <laughs> ridiculous mix because I ended up getting, you know, playing three first, first three test matches. I was playing really well. Uh, we had the Tiger Moth thing, and for some reason, the harder I tried after that, the worse it went. 
Um, and you, you know, these, these are the ups and downs that actually are not just international sport, but a sport at any level. Um, and in the end, you think, well, when you, when you finished a career, which was probably about, what, 15 years of international cricket and 18 years of first class cricket, and you move into a commentary box, well, then the nice thing is still being involved in something that's been very much part of your life. And the even nicer thing is that whatever you get wrong from then onwards is going to have less effect on you and other people than it did when you were a player. I would imagine you've probably had to tell the Tiger Moth story thousands of times, but <laughs> for the sake of, of listeners listening in, maybe for the first time, and, and I suppose more now our Zimbabwean-based listeners, they wouldn't really know anything about the Tiger Moth story. So would you please kindly relate <laughs> yet again? <laughs> well, it's, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been doing um, since the, well, I mean, well, since the broadcasting, since the Sky thing finished, I did a theatre tour last at October, November, September, October, November, uh, with all sorts of stories, including this. Uh, I've no, I mean, I, it's, it's a great story in its own way and with visuals as well. And I've got loads of cartoons about it, but we were, the story goes something like this. We were in Queensland, uh, on the 1991 tour of Australia, Graham Gucci's tour. Um, we were playing at the Gold Coast, not at the Gabba. Right. And the ground we were playing at, a little town called Carrara, just off the Gold Coast. Um, they had a, an airstrip right next door, and there were two ancient tiger moths, 1940-ish, give, give or take, 30s, 40s tiger moths. Um, so, you know, so the, the biplanes from that era, beautifully made, uh, English construction, but or English design, but probably rebuilt in Australia, and the Aussies were always tell us, tell us they built them better down there. <laughs> uh, but they were, doing, they were doing scenic tours. So basically, I got out that day uh, just before lunch, was wondering what to do after lunch. Um, I always say we had... Two of England's finest at the crease with orders to bat through the afternoon. Two of England's finest being uh, Robin Smith and Alan Lamb, born in Durban, and Langerman Vech, respectively. So they were batting through the afternoon, uh, wandered around to the airstrip, takes two minutes, borrowed money from management to get their team to do this. 75 Aussie dollars for the privilege of half an hour in the air. And we asked the pilots, because it was uh, two, two planes, two of us and two pilots, we asked them to do low-level runs, around the ground and down the line. The pitch, which my pilot, whose name is Bruce, because everyone in Australia is called Bruce, <laughs> uh, Bruce did exactly that. Um, and we then banked left and buzzed the beaches, got our full value for money for that $75 for the half hour, touched down, went back to the ground, carried on. But the problem was that, um, you know, the story was rumbled because the long lenses of our cameraman, they worked it out, it was me. Um, the management had no idea, so they got a bit upset. We had a meeting the following morning, a long hour meeting, which I basically said, look, I'm really, really sorry. I mean, I didn't mean to cause offence, just a bit of fun. I mean, one of those discussions that is between senior management, Captain Graham Gooch, and and me as sort of the, the errant uh, senior player from whom they wanted more. But I sort of tried to point out, for instance, that at that stage, with sort of 203 test matches and top scores elsewhere and averaging 50, I thought I was pulling my weight in this team in the test series. Indeed. So if they're talking about motivation and all the rest of it, why don't they ask the other 15 in the squad? And people don't take well to that. Anyway, so we, we basically agreed that, you know, things would have to be <clears throat> looked at. Um, there was a, um, a meeting, a serious meeting at high level. I mean, uh, tour management wondering how, how heavily to punish us. Um, and in the end, two or three days later in Adelaide, just pull the next test match. I got the call into the manager's office. There was a sort of polite exchange, um, £1,000 fine, which was quite steep. That was a maximum penalty. Goodness. 
Um, you know, $75 suddenly became a thousand pounds. It seemed a bit out of kilter. And I said, right, okay, done, accepted, paid it off. And said to myself, right, I now need to prove that all those things I said in the meeting about my motivation and my form were absolutely true. But the trouble was, <laughs> a couple of days later, we're second day of the fourth test match, it must have been. Uh, nice good pitch, we're batting first, I'm at number five, third wicket goes down, second morning. I walk into bat, and the Aussie, the guy on the PA system, public address system, proven they do have a sense of humour down there, played those magnificent men in their flying machines. Now, I had a sort of bit of a wry smile on my face when I heard that, sort of tickle my sense of humour too. Graham Gooch, who was both my captain and the guy I was joining in the middle, um, didn't quite see the funny side of that. And then the harder I tried, for the hour I had to bat before lunch, the worse it got. And I can have to confess, hand on heart, that the last possible ball before lunch, I spooned one up on the leg side with a horrible little shot caught by Murphy's running in from not even on the boundary so it didn't really go very far at all it was the worst possible time it was the worst possible shot one of the worst things I've ever done in my entire career um, and from that moment on the rest of the tour went horribly wrong Graham and I fell out um, we had sort of serious discussions about this that and the other and although I still got through the end of the tour right just about my form disappeared and when we got home, it was even worse. So for the next 18 months or so, I was playing rubbish cricket, not playing international cricket, and had to wait until sort of a summer and a half later where I got back into the side with Graham still captain, got back into the side at home against Pakistan. Finally, 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 the other thing on my mind, managed to get past Jeffrey Boycott's record at that stage as the man with the most runs for England. So in the end, it panned out all right. But I mean, for a, for a best part of two years, it was a shocker. When you have such incredible success as an international sports or an international athlete, let's use that word, um, and then things start going slightly awry, things start going a bit mm. wrong for you. How does that affect your personal life, David? Uh, it's not good. Um, the it depends. I mean, it 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 really is a question of degree. You, I mean, I I could always absorb little failures. Um, you have bad days, you get over it, you look forward to the next day. When little failures turn into bigger failures and a succession of failures, then it can be much more affecting. And it's very hard then just to park it when you go home. Um, I mean, for instance, just after that Ashes tour, that Gooch tour, um, at much the same time, or around about at that stage, I'd moved from Leicestershire to Hampshire, um, very much, and we're still in Hampshire now, so very much enjoying the environment, very much enjoying the new club, very much enjoying the new challenge. But the summer I came back from that Ashes tour started appallingly. So, um, and again, the harder I tried, the worse it got. So the Hampshire had to be very understanding. Uh, my captain, Mark Nicholas, was sort of looking at me askance and very worried, And you know, but they were very understanding. But for the first month and a half, I mean, I could barely get a run. Um, and I had to sort of completely deconstruct my game. That's something I'd never done before because I had always got by with ability, instinct, um, enough inner confidence just to go and do things, and nothing had quite got to me as badly as that. So that was really the hardest time ever 
in terms of completely looking at one's own mechanics. It's like sort of stripping an engine completely apart, trying to put it back together again. Yeah. And then thinking, what are these? What are these half a dozen parts that are still on the floor, which I haven't put back in it? And that, that's how it felt all summer. But things got better as the summer went on. Uh, winter up. So, but then I mean, to answer your question, the basic question: How does it, how does it affect your life at home? Well, it's, it's you know it puts pressure on you. It puts pressure on anyone close to you. I got married. I was sort of living with um, the girl who's been my wife ever since, um, and going back to the the place we shared in Southampton at the time. Uh, while we were still looking for houses in this lovely county. The, um, yeah, the tough times, for instance, coming back from that tour of Australia, going back to the county season in Hampshire, where you know, I was overall very happy, but I just had one of the worst starts to a summer ever. Um, they had to be very accommodating, very understanding. Um, you have your sort of professional angst going on all the time. You go home, someone has to try and understand, you know, the girl who is now... Uh, my wife and um, was going to be my wife sort of a year or so after this tough time. Well, yes, she, she survived. You put it that way. She survived that. We survived that. Um, but it's it's tough. I mean, it's, it, when you when you as a as, as an individual have to sort of dealing with your own angst and you're going to go home and you can't pretend that all is well in the world and someone has to understand who is not a professional sports person. Um, but just a sympathetic human being. It can be mighty, mighty tough. But as I say, um, as with all those ups and downs, you look back now, I look back now thinking, well, it was a tough time. Yes, it seems to be a long, long time ago, which is thankfully true too. And, um, you know, you move on. So there, And there's always another tough time around the corner somewhere, whatever's going, whatever's going on. So you just have to kind of wait for the next one and make the most of the good times exactly as if you were playing. That's incredibly well put. And, and you were talking of Hampshire. I, sadly, I've, I've never, ever been to England, and I hope that that changes in years to come. But Hampshire just seems to produce some incredibly good cricketers, be it uh, especially international cricketers. We've had a number of very good West Indian players playing there over the years. Of course, Robin Smith is, is a household name in Hampshire, even though he lives in mm -hmm. Australia now. But Malcolm Marshall had memorable seasons there. It just seems to be a wonderful environment to play your cricket in, be it as a youngster or as well at, at any given time, I guess. Yeah, um, and there were there were so many reasons to come to Hampshire. I, I mean, first of all, I, I felt at Leicester I'd sort of come to the end of my time there. I needed reinvigorating, needed new challenges. So, looking around, um, and this was it was. I mean, I've always described it um, slightly. Harshly, the sort of end of decade clearance sale. I left my former club, I left my former house, I left my former girlfriend, everything changed. And uh, we went to Hampshire, decided that the environment at Hampshire was a good one, good club, a good captain in Mark Nicholas. There was an obvious alternative, Kent, where I was born and where my best friend in the game, Chris Cowdery, was captain at the time. But that was almost too obvious. So I ended up at Hampshire. Um, which was a really good team at the time. You mentioned a few names there. I mean, Robin Smith, outstanding. Malcolm Marshall, one of the greats of all time. Yeah. And you know, if, if there were two people on a team, you want to be on the same team as they were right at the top of the list. But there are other really good players. Paul Terry, the opening is Chris Smith. Uh, Mark Nicholas himself, you know, good captain, good player. Um, decent bowlers, decent, you know, it was, it was a really good team spirit. 
which I enjoyed. Um, really good people and a really nice atmosphere at the club. And we had, um, you know, we managed to keep the run of success going that the club had enjoyed in the previous half a dozen years before I joined. So there was one, at least one NatWest victory. We played some decent championship cricket. Um, it was it was a really good move. And then part of that plan, part of that long-term plan was to settle in the county. So, for instance, Thorin, my wife and I, had a couple of years renting in, in and around Southampton um, before we found a house that we still live in now. We, you know, it took a good year and a half to, to find somewhere that we really liked, um, put, plowed all our savings into that. Um, and as I say, it's now now still home. Um, things have changed a lot. Uh, we brought up two girls here um, who are now in their 20s. So, I mean, you know, life has gone a long way since. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned players Alan Lamb, Robin Smith, both Southern African or South African batsmen. Mm. But then, of course, we, we can't exclude another Southern African-born batsman in Graham Hick. Was he one of the, the bigger disappoint, disappointments in you as, well, you would have played a little bit with him, uh, but certainly you played against him a lot when you played mm-hmm. for Leicestershire and also when you played for Hampshire. But just watching Graham as this incredible destruction of, of bowlers at county level, but just not really making the step up to test cricket. I mean, his, his average was, what, 34, 35, which, which isn't bad, but uh, given the way that he played at county county level, it should have been more 54 or 55, mm. shouldn't it? Yeah, it's, I mean, it is one of those great mysteries. Um, and whenever you try and judge a player, um, sometimes what, I mean, think, think the one thing you can never, ever get into is someone's mind. Um, and you can look at someone like Graham where, you know, the technique, the ability, the natural ability, the instinct, the flair, it's all there. And as you say, you watched him against um, still good bowling. I mean, county cricket was a high standard in that era. Uh, and there are always good bowlers around. And there, you know, some of the overseas players with the pace, you know, there, there's always people who will test you uh, in first-class cricket wherever you are. And the only thing you can guess at is that there was just something that didn't quite allow him to go the whole hog to make success of that test career. He had a couple of very good years where he averaged a lot more than that 34 you mentioned just now. And he looked the part. He got runs, he got hundreds, um, and he thought this might be the making of it. Then it tails off again. So the one thing I really didn't envy him was that when he made his debut, it was against the West Indies. And I mentioned earlier, West Indies in the 80s were probably the best side ever to play test cricket. Uh, in the early 90s, you still had people, um, you know, Kirtley Ambrose, Courtney Walsh, who were two of the finest ever. Um, they'd lost, you know, they didn't have quite the same depth um, when Graham was playing, but they still had some mighty fine bowlers. So he walks into bat for his first test match innings against those two. And they look at him and they think, yeah, we are going to target Graham Hick. And and that's that's a really tough start. I mean, I, I mean, if I look back, I started against Pakistan, uh, a side that didn't have people like Imran because of the Pakistan series that was going on at the time. So young, inexperienced Pakistan side, and you know they're still good players, they're still Test match players, and it's still your first Test match. But trust me, that was a much easier way of starting a Test career than it would have been had I started, say, a couple of years later against Andy Roberts, Michael Holding. Um, Joel Garner and all that lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm very grateful for my start. And Graham really had, 
um, you know, some tough cards dealt against him at the start of his test career. So I would say there's credit to be given when he came back from all that and started to make a few runs. And I'd say, yes, he will look back and think, well, for whatever reason, it didn't work as well as it might have done, could have done, should have done. But that, I'm afraid, is, you know, it's one of those mysteries. You know, there are, there are great players who you look at and you think, well, do they really have the ability? They certainly had the, the strength of carriage and the strength of mind and the determination to make the most of themselves. And there are other very talented players who, for some reason, and you can only say it's sort of a mental thing of some description, don't quite go all the way. Uh, you mentioned Graham Gooch early on. Uh, there's there's two things, well, one thing that I observed hugely about him. I've, I never got to actually commentate with him in the commentary box, but I have worked with him extensively. I did work with him in the inaugural T20 World Cup in South Africa in 2007. And him and I had a bit of a chat and a coffee and, and various other uh, beverages, but we, we, spoke about, we spoke about the love of county cricket, which even then, according to, to Graham Gooch, was beginning to wane. It was wasn't as strong as it was in your era and in his era. Mm. You know, to him, it was immense pride when Essex won the county championship. You know, he said it felt almost as good as England winning a test match because that's where it all started as a player. That's where you started to, I guess, sharpen your teeth or whichever expression you'd like to use. Yeah. And, and did you have that as well? Or do you feel that as well? It, it seems to me that county cricket isn't as respected, as liked, as cherished as it was even 27 or 28 years ago? It, it might be a question of perspective. It might be a question of familiarity, right. um, breathing that little bit of contempt maybe. Uh, things have certainly changed. I mean, there is a, a big school of thought suggesting that counter grid is no longer as strong as it was now compared to 20, 30 years ago. Um, and certainly when I was starting there seemed to be a lot of top quality international players, a lot of them West Indians. I mean, we mentioned Malcolm Marshall. Um, Hampshire also had Andy Roberts. Andy came to us at Leicestershire for a few years as well. There were always half a dozen West Indian quicks around. You had people later like Wazim Akram, Vakar Yunus playing for Lancashire and Surrey respectively. And you always knew if you were playing against teams like that. You had you know, challenges ahead. Sylvester Clark, for instance, playing for Surrey at the Oval. I mean, that was, oh. he was one of the most feared bowlers on the circuit. So, yes, counter cricket was tough. Um, I, when I'm in my first year at Leicestershire, so back in, what, 1975-ish, was the first time they won the championship under Ray Illingworth. I didn't exactly play, I mean, I played a very, very, very minor part in that, but was there to watch it, you know, basically as 12th man and played a couple of games, two or three games at the end of the season. Um, and that was a real triumph for a small club. Um, when I was captain of Leicestershire a few years later, 10 years later, and we were able to go to Lords and win, say, a Benson and Hedges Cup, Brent's right. It's, it's very satisfying to be able to go back because once you're an established international player and you're away from your county a lot, um, you're not um, prey to... You're not sort of part of the gossip. You're not part of the... You know, unfolding events that are a county season. Yeah. So to be able to go back and contribute and share the sort of uh, um, delights you get from winning test matches, because for a county player, winning a trophy is, for some, for some county players, it never, ever happens. For others, it happens once or twice. You know, it's, it's a very special thing. So to be part of that and to be in a dressing room with um, good, honest 
professional players who are simply made up because they've been part of a team that's won a trophy. That's very special. So in Graham's, Graham's absolutely right. Those things do count. I mean, it doesn't, in the end, I mean, against your ledger at the end of your career, I mean, the, the things that stand out will be the international uh, challenges. So you know, test match runs for me are the pinnacle and always will be. Um, they're the things that I would look at first. Um, and that's perfectly natural, I think. I think the, and then, but then some of the, some of those moments, like, for instance, Leicestershire winning trophies, like Hampshire winning trophies, um, they are etched very specially on the back of one, on the front of one's mind as well. So it, it's, it's a good mix, a really good mix. Now, I, I've heard you commentate. I've listened to you on and off when satellite allows it. I, the first time I ever heard you commentating was during, in my opinion, the best World Cup ever, which was the 1992 World Cup in Australasia. I, I love that World mm -hmm. Cup. Um, and you've, you've, as I've already alluded to, gone from strength to strength, seemingly effortlessly. But what would you say, so you've spoken about some of the career highlights as a player, but... 25 years, even more, as a commentator, I would imagine you've seen some really good cricket as a commentator as well. Oh, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, you, you refer back that 92 World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. Um, I was working for Channel 9, so I went down there, um, and it was <laughs> it's very rudimentary in the sense that I arrived in Sydney. A fellow called John Gaylard, who produced it for Channel 9, then came to Sky later. He was a brilliant producer, director. I know John very well, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, John, John basically, I went to see him in the office in Sydney, and he said, well, look, here's the tape, mate. Uh, have a look at that. This is how we do it, and we'll see you on Thursday. You know, there was no preparation, training, or induction. It was right, just get to the ground. Uh, someone will tell you what to do. And, of course, that, I mean, that is... Um, again, where you sort of learn by instinct or character to sink or swim very quickly. And I was with, you know, the great people, the great men like Benno, like Tony Gregg, like Ian Chappell, like Greg Chappell, uh, all these guys who were part of that team at the time. So it was a brilliant couple of months where I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I mean, I, I made some horrible mistakes. I mean, the, one of the, one of the, one of the games, John said, right, uh, we had to sort of go from Hobart to Adelaide. Um, overnight, and the flights were such that half the commentary team left Hobart at five o'clock in the afternoon while the game was still going on, and we went. We then caught up in the morning in Adelaide, um, and he gave me the presentation to do with Steve War and whoever. And I did a very simple thing, which is forget to move the microphone from my lips to his, <laughs> so that we could hear his answers. <laughs> um, and you think, ah, oh, okay. But John just said, okay, no worries, no worries mate. Um, following nice in Adelaide, game is finished. He says, right, you can do the presentation again. I went, oh, really? And, of course, you've learned, you know, overnight, you've learned. You, so you now it's 20 times better because at least you can hear the answers from the, from, from the captains you're speaking to. So all these things are part of that learning curve as a broadcaster. Um, and moving from being, say, a pure commentator to a presenter on a regular basis um, that started at the BBC where I went for the first six years of my English career. Uh, when I moved to Sky, um, you know, I took on the role as their international presenter. And again, you have, you know, you have good times, bad times. There are technical glitches that you, the first time it happens, you might panic gently. Um, you know, 20 minutes later or two days later, it's, you know what to do. And it's, you know, the, the whole thing, 
it's one of those things that the night the really really lovely thing about being a broadcaster like that is that first of all of course you know the subject and you're with mates and with enthusiasts all the people that make you look good and sound good you know test match at lords for instance there could be another 80 to 100 people working behind the scenes who are all part of that broadcast and they're all important and they all they're all part of that team so you rely on them they rely on you um the people I work with in the commentary boxes, both of them, you know, has been a lifelong friend. People like Mike Atherton, Nasser Hussain, I have immense respect for. They're really good, really hardworking, really clever, and really good at what they do. Um, all the others who've been through those commentary boxes over the last 20 years, you know, it's fantastic fun. So you have all that, which is absolutely great. Um, as, I said, as I said earlier, you have sort of your own professional pride, which says, okay, I want to get this right. Um, you know, it's nice finding the right words at the right times. It's nice... Um, you know, as, as a presenter, you know, sort of leading to things the right way. As, but you know, the whole the whole thing there, say, when you, when you get it right, is almost as satisfying as having a great day on the field with the bat. Yeah. Um, but it's never quite as emotional, you know. And and also watching, for instance, watching um, as an example, watching Andrew Strauss's team in Australia, which must have been around about 2010-11, winning the Ashes down under. Uh, I remember getting together after the Sydney Test match where, you know, series is finished. Uh, Strauss and his team have won the Ashes. And we did a thing, Sky did a thing, two hours reflecting on that tour. And I used the expression, there's a warm glow. Um, because we as commentators, um, as English commentators in Australia, you know, we, you try and, we, we're always trying to be balanced. We've always got to be... One shouldn't be biased, one shouldn't be jingoistic, one shouldn't be over-patriotic. But there was a nice feeling, nice warm glow that we could sit there enjoying Andrew's success, Andrew's team's success, and just reflecting on, you know, a couple of months, two or three months of really good hard work, which went the right way and finished with the right result, because we all understand how that feels. Um, and again, that's part of the joy of being a broadcaster about the thing you love so much, is that, you know, the trick is to let people know how important it is um maybe not in the great scheme of things when you've got a, a pandemic spreading around the world but it's you know it's part of life it's part of what people enjoy i mean they, you know it's, it's one of the great distractions in life and imparting that sort of enthusiasm and joy i think is is part, very much part of the job yeah, and uh, and of course, uh, names that you mentioned right at the very top of the show was was Ben Stokes. You've seen Ben perform some incredible things in his career. The two hundred and fifty mm-hmm. odd in Cape Town springs to mind, and that yeah. how he scored that hundred to win that uh, Test against against uh, Australia in the last year Ashes. I do not know, but I mean, those would just be two things that immediately spring to mind. Devon Malcolm in nineteen ninety four. I remember you being a part of the commentary team against mm-hmm. South Africa when he took nine for 50, for fifty seven. Uh, and uh, you would have been a part of, you weren't on air at the time, Bob Willis was on air at the time when Brian Lara broke the world record and went to 400. But all of these things, even whether you were on air or not, must be incredible to watch, you know, from, from the front row, basically, being a commentator. Uh, it's one of the great privileges, absolutely. The, um, all those things you mentioned. I mean, Stokes last year at Headingley was awesome. Um, the fact we had Ian Botham there, of course, as the man who had set the bar very high back in 1981 um, was there to compare. Uh, that was lovely. Um, and I had to say, you know, sort of <laughs> almost to Ian's face, we said, well, sorry about this, but I think the Ben Stokes innings was better. Yeah. 
um, which he acknowledged. And so, yeah, you're right. There are highlights. There, I mean, the more you think about it, the more things you can pick up on. You know, Lara was an absolutely brilliant player. I remember with Brian Lara, for instance, watching him um, the year after that 92 World Cup. I was back in Australia again for Channel 9 for a couple of months. Uh, working on the Australia West Indies series, and you know, with early days of Brian Lara, he got 275, 77, whatever it was, 275 or so yeah. at the SCG and played absolutely gorgeously against Warren, you know, very young and inexperienced Shane Warren. But you know, things like that um, are very, very special, and they're all there to treasure. Um, you know, you have you have got the best seat in the house. You've got a great view, and all you have to do is sit there watch. And, of course, uh, when you are on air, just to say, find, you know, the trick is finding the right words to add the magic. I mean, the best of that was, was Benno. Richie Benno, who I sort of worked alongside Channel 9, BBC, Sky, all these places. I mean, Benno was probably the best at finding, you know, a couple of words, and that's all it needed. Just to sum up a situation, a moment, um, you know, the great ability to not to waffle, not to be verbose, not to overdo it, unlike me at the moment. Yeah, this, that, that was his great <laughs> trick. I mean, he was just a, a brilliant wordsmith. You know, um, and, and we'll conclude shortly because um, I, we have been talking for a while and I don't like to detain you, but it's been such a privilege. But you speak of Richard ben being blind and, and being born totally blind, never being able to see. Mm. Even with his limited uh, words, he made me mm. understand exactly what was going on. So I remember that there was a very, very big six that Heath Streak <laughs> hit off the bowling of Jimmy Adams. And all he simply said was, that is a biggie. And I knew straight away that that had gone miles. And then yeah. he, hit, he hit another one a couple of balls later. And all he said was, he is an immensely powerful man. And I, I, he didn't say it was his streak or anything of that nature. But I knew uh, because yeah. his streak would have been at the crease. And I knew, obviously, streaky, not the smallest of guys and does pack a punch. Yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. robust. So, very robust. Very robust. So you know um, that, uh, you know that what, what's yeah. going on as a blind person. Well, I mean, I, I'm to be fair, I'm, I'm always amazed at the way um, people like you are able to visualise, as it were, what's going on. Um, I mean, I know, I know, this really, you know, the powers of description are, are vital at this stage. Yeah. We used to have a fellow we knew um, called Fred, who was a blind man who used to come into our commentary boxes. He's a charming guy. He just quietly sit at the back and make a couple of jokes and. Um, yeah, but he would, he'd, he'd come into our commentary box because he could sit anywhere in the ground and enjoy a game of cricket and yeah. people would tell him what's going on and he had that uncanny ability you guys have which is to sort of sense what's happening and judge it by all the other senses that, right. that make up the lack of that one crucial sense. Yes. Um, but Fred would just sit there listening and say, add a couple of words now and again quietly and, um, and I think in the old days you bring a guide dog in. I'm not, I'm not sure quite how much the guide dog enjoyed the game but... <laughs> Um, you know, it was, it is, a, it's a, again, it's a great privilege to, to know that um, the right words in the right order, in the right tone can bring that sort of light into someone's life. And the other, there's another guy we have in this country um, who, another blind chap who does a lot of work on Radio 4. Right. Um, runs a really good show on Radio 4. I'm just trying to... I, I Peter, just, Peter White? One of those, Peter White. Good yes. night. Exactly, yes. 
Peter, I was just thinking, I was just trying to think. Peter is brilliant as well. Yes, he is. And he, he, he once rang me up and said, look, I'm doing a series, you know, for radio where people teach me to do things. I'd like you to teach me to bat. <laughs> <laughs> and we spent a day at the, what is now the Aegeus Bowl, the Southampton ground, used yes. to be the Rose Bowl. Um, this lovely ground, um, which is, you know, a very, very fine stadium now, home of Hampshire and a great venue for international So we spent the day there, firstly in the indoor nets, with, you know, one of the, the balls that the blind cricketers use. Yes. Um, and I would definitely, you know, sort of hands, literally you have to be hands-on with Peter. So showed him how the mechanics work so he could feel the mechanics. Then you start, you know, rolling a ball towards him. And then we went outside and then I put the blindfold on and had this thing roll towards me. And, of course, he realised how extraordinarily difficult that is. So, for instance, when I've talked to the uh, the England disability teams uh, and the blind cricketers that have done so well over the last few years, and it's fantastic. I have to say, again, all credit to the authorities where they've given facilities and time and money and the whole thing to help these guys with their game as much as they have done to the England team that we all see and all the rest of it. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant what these guys can do. So... Um, and those sort of days are actually such an education for the likes of us, who've, again, to use the word privilege, have had that privilege of being able to play the game fully sighted, fully, fully fit, talented, you know, to enjoy the excitement of it all as players. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a really good thing to know that there is a way of imparting some of that joy to those who don't have the same physical abilities. Yeah, well, it, it makes sense. So, for example, uh, a cover drive. I never knew that when you... You know, I mean, I used to play, I was never very good at, even at blind cricket at school, I was a noisemaker. I used to sing songs by Def Leppard or the Beatles or whatever, and just make one very big record. Yeah. Um, but I never knew that in when, when playing a full-flowing cover drive, that the bat almost ends up, you know, by your shoulder, I, you, if I can put it that way. When you, when you present mm. the full face of the bat playing down the ground and when you're playing through the yeah. covers, I just assumed you, you moved slightly. Well, I used, to be, I used to be unorthodox, step outside the leg stump, swing as hard as I could and hope for the best that it would go over the top of cover or mid-off. You know, the typical number nine, number ten sort of a <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But not realizing well, that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, but there are so many variations of that same shot. I mean, mine, mine for instance, um, the, so the, the really lovely ones were the ones where actually it was, it was only a touch. It was, it was hardly a, hardly a you know, pick-up, hard one. Well, it would be a pick-up and no real follow-through. So just a touch where the ball does all the work. The ball comes to you, and on a good day, and these are things that sort of stay in your mind forever. On a good day, you just sort of see it, literally just touch it, almost gentle flick, and you see this thing scud off along the grass, um, and two seconds later, it's bouncing off the boundary boards. Those are the little moments of magic that even as you, know, you yourself, you know, as the individual, you just treasure those because they, they feel so good. And those are the moments also that, you know, for those that are sitting in the stands or wherever wherever you might be, even on the village green, those are the ones that people go, oh, wow, that was special. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those those are the satisfying ones. And then, David, the future of England cricket, are you are you happy with what's happening? Are there any concerns? I guess there'll never be complete content and happiness. There'll always be areas of concern. But generally speaking, now you've done your time, sadly, in the commentary box. But as a former cricketer and as a lover of the game, are you relatively happy with, with what you're seeing? Well, um, let's face it, you know, only 
not even a year ago. We, <clears throat> we've mentioned Ben Stokes heading in the Ashes. And to me, Test cricket remains the pinnacle. Things like the Ashes are very much at the top of that. Um, so that was special. That's a sign of things, certainly with a man, one man going incredibly well. You had the, the World Cup final. When I, mean, I was a part of two or three World Cups, um, for various reasons, missed a couple of others. And we got to a final in, I think, what, 1979, 80, semi-final 83. 80, yeah. You know, close but no cigar. Right. I watched the England team, that we mentioned, 92 in Australia, where they should have won it. They were the best team in that tournament. Pakistan turned out to be the winners at Melbourne at the end of it. Um, so, in other words, for 40-odd years, England have tried to win the competition that they, I would say they invented, because it's very much a world thing and it wasn't their invention per se, but they hosted it for the first three years. Um, and it's taken that long to win. So there are things like that. Owen Morgan, for instance, and his one-day side. Owen Morgan is the most impressive captain. Yes. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So there's a lot of good stuff happened there in the last four years, the pinnacle winning the World Cup last summer. There's more good stuff to come. The test side has a couple of not really weaknesses anymore. There's, you know, the, the winter in South Africa was quite encouraging because some of those gaps was starting to be filled. So, But there's always something you can look at. Um, but I would say, in general terms, England is in a very strong position at the moment. Um, they have got, you know, the Stokes, the Stokes of, these world, of this world are the superstars. There are other really, really good players. Um, and the team ethic is strong. So um, they are a good team. The, I mean, the, the next big challenge, I guess, um, virus permitting is in a couple of winters time well actually i'm saying next week chance india next winter mm. always tough australia the winter after that next ashes series um you know two tough asks so we will know more about this england team by the time they've been to both those venues well, david gawa it has been a privilege an honor and a pleasure talking to you thank you for for coming on to dean at stumps and i hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as i did thank you so much for your time Dean, my pleasure too. Uh, I wish you all well out there. There's all sorts of things going on, I know. Yeah. Um, but it's been a, been a while since I've been in Zim. Always used to love coming in there. And I hope it's not too long before we're back. I do remember you actually being on air when Edo Brandis got his hat-trick against England in <laughs> right, January 1997. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. All the best to you, David, and thank you for your time. I get in. If that isn't the equivalent of a beautiful Sunday roast, then nothing will ever be. You've been listening to the Dean at Stumps podcast. And just a reminder that you can subscribe to the Dean at Stumps podcast or remind your friends or family members and tell them about it. It would be very nice if you could do so. And you can subscribe by simply going to your preferred podcast app, be it iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Downcast, Pocket Cast, or any other cast that has a pod. Thank you very much indeed for listening to the show. It's been a pleasure having you along, as always, and uh, we'll be back pretty soon. But until then, it's goodbye. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. 